have you ever been around somebody larger than life? Somebody that just, somebody that just like, when you're in their presence, it just like, oh, it, it was just something different about them. Uh, for me, I have a picture. Uh, his name is Sam Schwartzstein. I think I have a picture. There he is. Uh, when I was a youth minister in Texas, Sam Schwartzstein was one of my high school students. Now, I have to explain this because as a youth minister, I loved being bigger than my kids. I loved being bigger than my teenagers because I loved to intimidate them and don't think I wouldn't use that to my advantage. I would put them in headlocks and I would, you know, if they were out of line, I just, you know, I, the fact that I was 6'6 and 200 pounds, you know, I just used it until Sam walked through the door. I read his stats. It said that he was 6'2", 294, but when Sam and I looked at each other, he looked me dead in the eye and I'm 6'6". I weighed about 200 pounds then and he easily had me in high school by 100 pounds. Um, and Sam changed the whole dynamic of my youth ministry uh, because he wasn't afraid of me. He wasn't intimidated at all. And the truth is I had nothing on him. He was one of these guys that had these, that like his hand could cover my whole chest. And he had these big old sausage fingers. Like, and when we ordered food for the youth group, I had to like double it if I knew he was going to be there. Right? Like, like his, he had one of these necks. Like his neck was as big as my torso in high school. I, you know, I would like rub up against my teenage boys and kind of nudge them and kind of wake them up and all that kind of stuff. And I would rub up again and I would just bounce off. Um, it's no surprise probably that uh, uh, in addition to being ginormous, uh, Sam Schwartzstein was also brilliant, valedictorian of his class and uh, went to Stanford. And uh, he spent four years as the starting Center. He started as a freshman at Sanford uh, as their starting center. Uh, he played with a guy you might know. His name is Andrew Luck. That was the one who snapped the ball to every week. And for four years, he was their starting center and uh, was the captain of the Stanford team his last year there. Um, Sam Schwartzstein was mighty. Everything about him exuded might and strength, and power. And in chapter 9, Isaiah's prophetic oracle, he describes the one who would come and bring an end to the darkness, one who would usher in a season of light and life. And Isaiah uses that word mighty to describe it. Isaiah says the one who's come, he's going to be an everlasting father, a prince of peace, a wonderful counselor, but he is mighty God. That means strong, a champion, a chief among men, a giant. That same mighty word is a word used to describe another giant in scripture, Goliath. Mighty exudes like this, this idea of bravery and boldness and, and valiance and, and prowess, especially in military engagement. A mighty God is capable of enormous force, a, a, a God capable of enormous power. Now I want to fast forward 800 years from the time of Isaiah. The Sea of Galilee sits just south of, a, of an incredible mountain range, high, high peaks. 
And what will happen sometimes is that storms will gather in those high mountain peaks and travel through the valleys and the Sea of Galilee is waiting right there to receive them. So massive, unimaginable storms can happen just like that. And that's what happens. Jesus and his disciples are in a boat. When they leave, the, the, the Sea of Galilee is calm. And all of a sudden, a tremendous storm rolls down through those mountains. And it strikes the boat that they're in. Uh, water begins to flood in over the sides. Really, the, the truth is they're sinking. And they're all about to drown. And the disciples are terrified. They're, they're, they're in a panic. And they, they run to Jesus, the only one who maybe can do something. Where is he? He's not intimidated, is he? Even in the face of wind and waves, Jesus is asleep in the back of the boat. Look what it says in uh, Mark uh, uh, chapter 4, verse 41. It says the disciples were absolutely terrified because Jesus, they wake him up and Jesus says what? Peace be still. And the wind and the waves, they immediately calm. The disciples recognize they're in the presence of one who is mighty. And they even ask themselves, who is this? Who is this man? Just a chapter later, in Mark chapter 5, it's a great Halloween kind of like horror movie story. Again, Jesus and the disciples arrive at, arrive at this distant shore when a wild man comes screaming out of the cemetery. It's pretty interesting that this wild man, like Sam's horse scene, is, is full of incredible might and power. It says that, that the chains and shackles that the people tried to put onto him could not contain it. Um, no one could subdue him. And he, it says that he wandered among the caves and hill, hillsides, howling and cutting himself. And when Jesus and his disciples arrive in the area, this guy bum rushes them, just like in a horror movie, when the killer emerges out of nowhere. And for the second time in two chapters, Jesus' disciples have to change their shorts. But not Jesus. He doesn't even flinch. Without even breaking a sweat, he releases the man from the evil within him. The guy even becomes a disciple of Jesus and tells everyone what's happened. When John's disciples hear of, hear of this Jesus, this one who maybe could potentially be the mighty one of God, like the, John sends his disciples, which is curious because John was his cousin, right? So anyway, but in Luke chapter 7, verses 21 and 22, John's disciples show up at Jesus and they ask this question, like, like, who are you? Are you the one? Are you the mighty one of God? And here's what Jesus said. Jesus actually quotes Isaiah, saying, go back to John and tell him what you have seen and heard. Tell him that the blind see. Tell him that the lame walk again, that lepers are cured, that the deaf hear and the dead are raised to life, and that the good news is being preached to the poor. Is Jesus the mighty one of God? What do you think?
I love what it says, uh, the beginning of Colossians, the writer of, of Colossians, looking at Jesus, he says these amazing words in chapter 1, verse 15 through 20. He says that Christ is the invisible image of the, he is the visible image of the invisible God. It says that he existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't. Keep going. He made thrones and kingdoms and rulers and authorities even in the unseen world. And everything, everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else and he holds all creation in his hands. This Christ is also the head of the church, which is the body. He is the beginning supreme over all who rise from the dead. He is the first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ and through him God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth. Let me read that again. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. When Thomas, the doubter, comes face to face with him after the resurrection, you remember what Thomas says? From deep within Thomas, despite all the doubts and fears and questions that he had, from deep within Thomas arise these incredible words when he realizes the truth and he looks in Jesus' face and he says, My Lord, my God, you are the supreme one, the image of the invisible God. It's interesting if you look through Scripture all through the New Testament, Whenever Jesus encounters a, uh, an evil spirit or a demon or however it works, the evil spirits, they always recognize Jesus for who he is. They always know exactly who he is. But who are the ones that are confused? It's us, right? You see, I think most of us think of Jesus as friend or counselor or maybe advisor or teacher. And, and he is all of those things. But today I want to introduce you to a Jesus who is so much more. Because to miss the more is to miss the power and might of God. Sometimes it's convenient for us to think of Jesus as friend and teacher because frankly that's just more manageable than to think of Jesus as mighty God, king of the universe. And we see that mighty God doing mighty things. Like, like, look in Scripture. Do you see it again and again and again? Jesus, the mighty God, proves his power, proves his prowess, is never intimidated, won't be distracted or defeated. But that's not it. There's, this, there's a second half to this mighty God narrative. Look what it says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 1. It says that Jesus, the mighty one of God, calls his disciples together. And then look what happens. An amazing, incredible thing happens. The mighty one of God calls his disciples together and gives his disciples authority. He gives his might and power to his disciples. He gives them power to cast out evil spirits and to heal every kind of disease and illness. If you fast forward to verse 8 in that same chapter, 
He tells his disciples, hey, I want you to heal the sick. Did you look at what he says next? Were you expecting this? He says, as my disciples, your job is to raise the dead. Cure those with leprosy and cast out demons. He says, I want you to give as freely as you receive. In Luke's account, Jesus tells them, he he says, look, I've given you authority over all the power of the enemy. He even says, you can walk among snakes and scorpions. You can crush them. In Luke 10, 19, he says, nothing will injure you. And what's crazy, even, even crazier about this declaration of God that seems impossible is what it says in Luke chapter 10, verse 17. Just a few verses before. The disciples actually try this out. They actually go and and attempt to do this stuff. And it says, when the 72 disciples returned, they joyfully reported to him, Lord, even the demons obey us when we use your name. They come back and they say, it worked. I love if you fast forward to Acts Even in the early church, in Acts chapter 1, Jesus says the power of the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you. It's going to give you what you need. It's going to share the same might that I have with you. You're going to get to be a part of this. And in Acts chapter 2, what you see is thousands of people being baptized. You see fellowship and goodwill towards all people is shared like never seen or imagined before. In Acts chapter 2, verse 43, here's what it says. A deep sense of awe came over all of them. Because the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. And what we're supposed to see is that to those who share in the mission, to those who would follow in his footsteps, the mighty God transfers or shares his power and might with us. We see it time and time again throughout Scripture. Signs and wonders, incredible works of power and might. It happens almost without exception. And I have to put that almost in there. Like like all this power transfer that happens between the mighty one of God and his followers, it, it works almost all of the time. But there's a couple of instances where it doesn't work. Matthew chapter 17 tells this story of of a dad whose son is uh, um, possessed, has has this evil within him, this spirit within him, sends him into seizures. And the scene starts kind of in an interesting place because it's a dad bringing his, his son who is possessed to Jesus. And the first thing the dad says is, I tried to bring my son to your disciples, but they failed to draw the spirit out. Like, have you ever been just called out in public before? You know the disciples are standing right there. He's like, I tried to bring him to those guys standing right there. And they couldn't do anything. The disciples looked down, stepped back, you know, like. And of course, what does Jesus do? Jesus heals the boy. And it says in Matthew 17, right after this, in verses 19 and 20, 
It says that the, the disciples approached Jesus after, like, okay, Jesus, <laughs> we've, this has worked before, but in this case, it didn't work. We've done great things in your name, but we tried here, and it didn't work. And they're, they're incredibly curious. Hey, Jesus, what did we do wrong this time? What happened? And Jesus' response in Matthew 17, 20 is a response that we all should pay attention to. Jesus simply looks at him and says, hey, you don't have enough faith. Another instance of the power and might of God almost working is in Mark chapter 6. In Mark chapter 6, the very beginning of that chapter, Jesus returns to his, his hometown of Nazareth. He goes to the temple. He begins to teach and preach. And, and the people he grew up with, right? Like, so these are like, imagine this scenario. Like, these people know Jesus because they remember baby Jesus. They remember when Jesus was little. They remember when Jesus was a teenager. They remember when Jesus was a preteen. You know what I'm saying? Like, they know who Jesus is. They've seen him and lived with him their whole entire life. And now this Jesus that they knew is teaching and preaching in the synagogue. And, and the people are astonished. But they're not even astonished. It, it, what it says is his friends and neighbors begin to challenge and question him. They say, where, where did you get this power and wisdom from? And what they make is they make an exclamation about him. They say, we know who you are. They even say, you are just a carpenter. You are the earthly son of Mary and Joseph, who gave you this wisdom and power? We know who you are. We got you figured out. We've known you since you were little. You're just a carpenter's son. Is that who he is? And look what it says in Mark 6, beginning of verse 5 and 6. Here's what happens. Because they're so certain he's a carpenter. It says this, because of their unbelief, Jesus, the mighty one of God, couldn't do any miracles among them except to place his hands on a few sick people and heal them. Think about this. Because of their unbelief, all of the might and power of God was restrained held. And I think what we see is that the might of God, like, like an engine, requires two things for power to be unleashed. It requires both fuel and oxygen for combustion. And without the oxygen of belief, the power and might of God is squelched and choked out. I'm going to give you a deep truth today. Man, this has, been, this has just been shaking me lately. Uh, go ahead and put that on the screen, Lynn. It simply says, if we fail to believe that Jesus Christ is the mighty God, he doesn't lose power. We do. Let's let that sit with you for a second. Man, maybe like me, you've 
you've read these stories of, of Jesus giving power and authority to his followers. I mean, he gives them the power to raise the dead. And maybe like, like me, you're, you're sitting here and you think, well, I've never seen that kind of power at work in my life. I, I can't remember the last time somebody said, man, that was a pretty amazing sign and wonder you just performed there. Maybe you've asked the question, what if I've never done anything worthy of the designation mighty? And if that's you, I think one of the greatest and most important things Christmas teaches us is to look again. How many of you uh, have a neighbor that has a nativity scene somewhere in their front yard? You got that? Go drive down downtown Franklin, get your... Yeah, good. You know what I'm talking about. So here's your homework. When you drive past that cute nativity scene in your neighborhood or, or in, a, in the front of a church somewhere, I want you to stop. Just, just, just stop. Trespass a little bit. Get out of your car. I want you to walk up to that nativity scene And I'm going to invite you to peer over the edge of the manger again. And as you look deeply into that manger, the question is, who is it that you see here? What is it that you see when you look in here? When you peer over the side of a manger, is, is it just a simple carpenter's son? Is it simply just an earth-born son of, of Joseph and Mary that you see? Or do you see a, like a Sam Schwartzstein? Sorry, maybe that didn't make sense, but I wanted to add it. Do you, would you look, honestly, like, like ask yourself, I know all the, all, the, all the Christmas trees and all the reindeer and the, the inflatable elves and all this kind of stuff. But like when you look into that manger, what do you see? Do you see the mighty God? I invite you to remember what Gabriel told Mary. This great scene from Luke chapter 1. An angel shows up, shows up to, to, to sweep Mary and tells her, like, hey, you're going to be pregnant. And Mary's response is, uh-uh, not me. In verse 35 of Luke chapter 1, the Holy Spirit, he says, the Gabriel tells her, he said, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And Mary tries to re- resist it and say, hey, look, this is impossible. And I don't know if you remember, but in, in verse 37 of Luke chapter 1, Gabriel reminds her of an important truth. It's an important Christmas truth, frankly. Gabriel simply tells her, nothing is impossible with God. It's that same sentiment, those exact same words that Jesus shares with his disciples later when when they're unable to produce the might and power of God. Remember what he told them. He said, "You, you just don't have enough faith. But then he goes on to tell them in Matthew 17, verses 20 and 21, he says, I tell you the truth. If you had faith even as small as a mustard seed, you could do what? 
You could tell this mountain to move from here to there and it would obey. And then he tells them again, said, with faith, even the size of a mustard seed, he reminds them that nothing would be impossible. You see, here's what I think. I think everything about Christmas, like a giant billboard in our face, screams at us, don't underestimate what God can do. Right? Isn't that the message in the manger? Don't underestimate what God can do. When you look at that manger, I want you to realize that, that even, as an infant, even as a child, he's not anxious or worried. That Jesus is not weak or passive. That Jesus will not be threatened or intimidated or diminished or distracted or defeated. So why are we? I think the, the manger invites us to have faith again. To believe in the might of God, but to also believe that the might of God, that the same power that's within God is within us. And sometimes maybe people look at our small church as a mousy church, but I would tell you that we're mighty. I would tell you that through the power of God, we are mighty and that through the power of God, through our belief in his might, nothing is impossible. And so the question for our church, the question for Christmas is really, what's undoable because we're willing to do it and try it? For next year, we've been praying about what are the big things that God wants done? What are the impossible things that God wants done that he can do through us? And we've been talking about what if we did 100 Bible studies with new believers next year? You think a small church can do that? What if we brought a hundred people to Christ? What if we celebrated a hundred baptisms? What if as, as a church, we committed that every student and every child would have as much opportunity to fall in love with Jesus as possible? What if our small church, through the might of God, made an impact in our local community and in the, in the global community in ways never before imagined? What if in our small church, like this is using the words of Isaiah quoted by Jesus, what if in our small church the blind could see, the lame could walk, lepers could be cured, and the dead raised to life? What if in our small church the good news of Jesus Christ was preached to everyone? You see, I think through the might of God, Like this church has the power to change the face of Franklin and, and Nashville for Jesus Christ. And when you look in the manger this Christmas, I want you to remember that not only is he the mighty God, but he's given that power to us if we would only believe in him. In just a moment, I'm gonna say a prayer and dismiss you to a time of communion. We've got the table set up around the room sacred space for us, incredibly important. Remember as you go to this place, like you meet Emmanuel, right? That God with us, that, that God's desire is to be with you. He wants to be with you and he offers himself to you in this place. But I, I pray that you go humbly too. Maybe there's sin that in your heart that needs to be confessed. Maybe there's doubt. Maybe you've, you have been distracted or defeated. As you take this bread and this cup, I remind you, I hope that you remember the might of God who defeated the power of death and sin. Let's pray together. Father God, I love you. Thank you for your word.
Mostly, God, I, I just pray that, that you would compel us to look again. Man, I feel like there's so many distractions this time of year. Things get, get glossed over and, and oversimplified sometimes. But God, like, like if, we look, if we look into your face, if we look into the truth of who you are, we see that you are mighty God, king of the universe. And if we see that truth and, and can acknowledge it, then we know that it's time for us to step off our own thrones and put you again in our rightful place. To humble ourselves before you, the mighty God. And at the same time as we recognize God, you, God, we, we recognize that you compel us to go, that you've actually empowered us to carry out your mission and purpose in the world. And so, Father God, man, for, forgive us if we've chosen mousy over mighty. Fill us again with your strength and power. Let us trust your truth and, and move forward in faith. Father God, we love you. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for his birth. And it's in his name that everyone together says,